I was thinking this week about the possibility that there are Christians, Christ followers, who go to churches that preach topically, and therefore in their entire Christian life may never hear a sermon about circumcision. When preachers handpick their topics, it's not usually a likely choice. But for a church that commits to preaching through books of the Bible and every line of books in the Bible, we choose not to just skip the last four verses of Romans 2 and dive into Romans 3, but to unpack it. And interestingly, the last sermon on circumcision was December 4, 2022. So we're in Colossians 2 at the time. And so here we are one year later, almost to the day, back addressing it. And let's just start with, it's not only an Old Testament or Old Covenant matter. It is a huge tension or was a huge tension in the New Testament churches, especially at first. And that's why we see it show up so much throughout the New Testament. But the principles that underlie what God says about circumcision here and elsewhere apply to many things in the modern church and definitely to the modern people, even though bodily circumcision may no longer be a factor at all, perhaps even if you don't know what it is. So how do we get to circumcision in Romans 2? Long story made short, last week we noted, starting in verse 17, that there is now a third group of people without Christ, without his righteousness imputed to them, who will be equally under God's wrath on judgment day, alongside the God-rejecting, blatantly immoral people of Romans 1, and the self-righteous, I'm not as bad as others, good works people of the first half of Romans 2. And now the second half of Romans 2 unpacks this third group, the law-loving and circumcised Jews. Again, the driving point in all of this that will really be uh, resoundly driven home in the next couple of sermons from Romans, which might be a month apart with Christmas coming up, that all who sin, no matter how they do it, in what context, by what means, who sin apart from Christ will perish under the wrath of God on judgment day. So this group, starting in verse 17, believes they have eternal life with God, that they're good with God, that they will not perish because of two particular things, as we noted, and we'll put the outline up from last week again, um, just to remind you of this full context, that God gave them the law, that people particularly, and made them his mouthpiece to the world. And now, today, God gave them a unique sign of a special covenant love with them of circumcision. So last week, we covered verses 17 to 24, the first reason and the rebuttal to why Jews consider themselves safe. And today, we'll unpack and look more detail at the second reason that God's covenant sign given to Jews as the people of God and what God sees as true circumcision and true Jews. 
few people's perspectives here on this section. Robert Haldane says, Paul here pursues the Jew into his last retreat. James Boyce, the Jew had one last card to play, one final argument. He had been circumcised. And circumcision brought him into visible outward fellowship with that body of covenant people to whom God had made salvation promises. And if it seems Paul goes hard on the Jews here, Douglas Moo reasons this is simply because the Jews' special place in salvation history gave them a much stronger reason to believe they did not need the gospel than the Gentiles had. So ultimately, what's at stake here is the necessity of the gospel for anyone on judgment day to not perish under the wrath of God, even Jews, even ones who believe they are the most righteous before God. God is using Paul to level the playing field between Gentiles and Jews, and we will see that unpack in Romans. But here he is laying some of that foundation, particularly by the last two sentences. Brief note very quickly before we read and unpack this. First of all, uh, that there are a couple of instances in here in this section where God will use what we call a play on words. He'll use circumcision, sometimes to refer to physical, sometimes in a spiritual way. And he'll use Jew, sometimes as an external or ethnic Jew, and sometimes by a spiritual identity because of what's happening internally. So note those as we go through. Would you please follow along as we read God's holy word? For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and the circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Heavenly Father, again, what you charge the Jews with here in Romans 2 is helpful for us as well. So please help us by the Spirit to vividly understand what you are saying and not diminish its importance. We acknowledge that there is also much here for us. Show us each where we look too much to the external things and not enough to the internal in the heart. When we look at self-produced works rather than your work, and remind us Gentiles afresh of the wonder and joy of being welcomed by you into covenant relationship with you. How we thank you for that grace. Please use this portion of Romans to purge sin from this body, from this minister, from each of your sons and daughters, as you transform us to be more like the sinless Savior who came as a child 
2,000 years ago. We ask in your name. Amen. So it's hard for us who are distanced from this time period, distanced from this practice or this way of thinking, to really grasp how important circumcision was to the Jews, at least to some Jews, and it continues to be to some as well. We might just quickly think of scriptures like Galatians 5, which says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Or 1 Corinthians 7, 19, same wording, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. But God wants us to understand why Paul is pressing so hard here on something we might not see as a big issue. There's quite a range of uh, teaching explanation uh, about how the Jews thought about this, and there certainly was a range among them of how they viewed it. Instituted by God in Genesis 17 through Abraham as a mark or an indicator, a unique distinguishing indicator of who was part of God's covenant plans. For the next few thousand years, that passion would sometimes be strong and sometimes be weak. There were seasons where they could not, even as we've been noting in captivity in Sunday school through the Old Testament, where they could not practice it, which oftentimes then led to an intensified passion for it once they could again. Many Jews, certainly not all, but many put a ton of stock in this one act, one mark for the meaning and the significance of it. Tom Schreiner capsulizes it to say circumcision sometimes stood for the Jewish faith generally. I've read that some rabbis even taught that it guaranteed entrance into heaven. So try to look at things from this perspective as we walk through these words from how important it is to certain people and perhaps feel more of the weightiness that these words would have had on the first hearers, readers of this letter. And in this midst, let's remember also, while we celebrate Jesus' birth, that we're also told specifically in Luke 2 that on the eighth day after he was born, Jesus himself was circumcised, that Mary and Joseph took him there and was given his name as the angel had charged him. So circumcision even before what we'll see of the description of Christ on the cross, was such a big deal that God included in his plan that his own son would be a circumcised Jew. And that's why verse 25 says what it does, because it is true of Jesus. For verse 25, for circumcision indeed has value or profit or significance to someone's salvation if... Huge if, four words, you obey the law. If you fulfill all the other demands of the law of Moses fully as well. This is the same theme all chapter long where the law has been referred to that fulfilling the entire law was the only way to truly be seen as righteous before God. God is telling Jews here that the keeping of this one command, which actually wasn't in the law but given before that, or some commands within the law would not suffice for righteousness. No one can go part way. Circumcision is not that big of a matter. And then the 
recourse or the contrast, but if you break the law, then interesting wording, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision or a way that you're not identified as the people of God. So a circumcised Jew not keeping the law um, is fundamentally no different, God is saying, from an uncircumcised Gentile who is keeping the law. So Galatians 5, which wrestles with this issue as well, particularly to those who wanted to add this after faith in Christ as a part of the guarantee or the sealing of salvation, wrongly, Paul warns, if you accept circumcision, if you make that part of what's necessary for salvation, then Christ and his work will be, the gospel will be of no advantage to you. Because to every man who accepts circumcision, he's obligated to keep the whole law. Same point that Paul is driving there. In Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. The bigger issue than bodily circumcision is the keeping of all the law of God. And again, at this point in Romans, Paul is not yet emphasizing the necessity of faith. We're going to see a couple new thoughts in verse 29, but even the idea of faith is not yet introduced. He's simply exposing a flawed reasoning among many Jews about the significance, the salvific significance of their righteousness being circumcised. So, very quickly, two-way contrast in verses 26 and 27 puts it positively, then we might say puts it negatively or explains the outcome of that. If a man who is uncircumcised, normally that's a reference to a Gentile, keeps the precepts of the law, if he actually could do it, He'd be better off than those who are not keeping the law, even though they may have the signature mark of being God's people. His uncircumcision will be regarded as circumcision, again, internally, as the mark of truly belonging to God because of his keeping of the precepts of the law. So again, the most significant factor is not the circumcision, but the obedience to God in all matters and ways. And the conclusion then is that those whom the Jews often look at negatively, who are physically uncircumcised, but if they were keeping the law, they would condemn those who have been given the written code, that was last week's text, 17 to 24, and circumcision, 25 to 27 here, but break the law. Circumcision was never the way to enter into covenant relationship with God but was meant to display the faith relationship that came through uh, belief in God and in his provision of a Messiah. So verses 28 and 29 then, what God sees to be a true Jew with a true circumcision, and uh, just a couple of thoughts here from others to drive this home. Martin Lloyd-Jones said of these two verses that they sum up the whole mighty argument of the entire chapter. So we might call it a mic drop moment in that way. William Barclay says, with one stroke, Paul was abolishing the very basis of Jewish thought, shutting out from real Jewishness many, many a Jew and introducing a new conception which made Jewishness a thing available to every nation as wide as the earth itself. Moose speaks of it as a radical redefinition of Jew. First, a clarification of what God does not see to be a true Jew. 
No one is a Jew in the genuine covenant meaning of that term who is truly one outwardly by those external acts or marks, nor is circumcision outward and physical. In other words, we might ask, is someone really helped if they only carry out a ritual or a ceremony or a practice or a rite externally with their body without experiencing the significance of it and the true meaning of it internally in their heart? Same things that you and I can do today. We'll make application at the end of singing, taking communion, being baptized, etc. We can do things on the outside that look very spiritual, seem very spiritual, seem to indicate we're part of God's people when we actually have never had that internal experience and circumcision. With verse 29, we begin to see the first hints of the reality that righteousness before God can never be attained by physical acts. Here's how God sees a true Jew with a true circumcision. He's one inwardly, first of all, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. Now, this is not a brand new meaning uh, or explanation only in the New Testament, only in the New Covenant. It's a forgotten or overlooked one from the Old Testament. Three quick examples or proofs of that. All the way back to Deuteronomy 10 as the people are preparing to enter the promised land. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve your Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. And the response to all that majestic blessing is, back if you would, to circumcise your hearts. The foreskin, even God gives a very graphic picture, the foreskin of your heart and no longer be stubborn. Then he reiterates that in a, in a condensed form in Deuteronomy 30. And then much, 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 much later in Israel's history, Jeremiah brings back up the call to circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts, and it goes on, lest God's wrath go forth like fire because of the evil of your deeds. So God has Paul really portray this over in the letter to the Colossian church. And let's keep in mind that the church of Rome may not, in fact, there's very good likelihood they have not seen this letter and had this explanation. But here we get a gospel-centric explanation of it that eventually would be clear to them. But perhaps Paul has already made it clear to the Roman church as well. First of all, the reality in Colossians 2.13 is that we are described as dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Without the Spirit's internal circumcision, those who are uncircumcised outwardly or those who think that's what has, will save them are uncircumcised or they are dead. And then verse 11 portrays this inner working that in him, in Christ, in Christ's internal work inside of you, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. 
that God did something, again, not just for those forward from the cross here, but all the way back in time retroactively to all who have put their faith by putting off the body of the flesh. The old, unbelieving, sinful nature has been put off, discarded as useless, done away with, because God has a new life to bring out of that. And it's been done by the circumcision of Christ. Either Christ doing that internally within us, or some believe that this is describing that Christ himself went through the violent removal of his human unglorified body so that he could be raised with a new and glorified. Same body, but glorified and perfect in all of that. Either way, graphic portrayal of an inner work that's done that is the circumcision that truly matters to God and that matters eternally. The second aspect in verse 29 of true circumcision is that it's done by the Spirit. That the Spirit alone, that God alone can do the work in the heart that is necessary and it's done through faith and it's not simply by the letter or the following the actual words as if the words would give life but ultimately by the Spirit and God at work to do that. So Paul will explain that in 2 Corinthians, in his second letter to the Corinthian church, speaking of their ministry, but it captures this same idea that they're ministers of a new covenant, and this new covenant is not of the letter, and then he explains the letter kills. It simply exposes our inability to keep it, but of the Spirit, for it is the Spirit who gives life. What has been missing in all of this belief with the circumcision of the body with the Jews, what has been missing is the spirit. Even though it was prophesied in Ezekiel 11 and in other places where God said through Ezekiel, I will give them, the Jews, his people, one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh or I will circumcise that heart of stone and give them in its place a heart of flesh a change of the person, not just of the bodily part, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. So you can see all of this same idea unpacked here in Ezekiel. So it was expected, it was longed for, it was dreamed of, but when the Spirit actually came, just a few decades before when Paul is writing this, most Jews missed him. They missed the Messiah, and they missed entirely what God was doing as the Spirit came and worked mightily in hearts through the gospel. Charles Hodge, whenever true religion declines, the disposition is to lay undue stress on externalities that increases. John Stott, Human beings are comfortable with what is outward, visible, material, and superficial. But what matters to God is a deep, inward, secret work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And then Tom Schreiner, any outward sign, even one ordained by God, is worthless if it is not connected with, and I would maybe 
even prefer the wording there, caused by, driven by, empowered by an inward work of grace. But that is where the outward sign that's manifested is ultimately originated and the significance and meaning begins. So the circumcision of divinity, not humanity, is the true mark of someone having entered into covenant relationship with God. Brief caveat, very quickly, for one time in 10 years, there's time. Uh, just on the Holy Spirit, uh, he has already been mentioned back in the introductory section, but this is his first mention since then. But I just want to note that it is a precursor, a teaser, a trailer for some unpacking of some beautiful things in Romans 5 through 8, particularly Romans 8, though the first verse I'll we'll put on the screen here is from Romans 7. But Romans 8, I think, refers to the Spirit, capital S, 14 times in that chapter. So it's going to come, and it's going to come with a huge explosion of glory of the Spirit. But here, connected to what we're talking about, Paul says, we'll say in chapter 7, which we'll get to sometime probably next fall or eh, summer maybe, we are re- for now, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, which was the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And then over into chapter 8, the opening verses, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that, and here's where the beauty is, and we'll finish with this later today, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us through Christ and then through his spirit working who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So look forward to more unpacking of the Holy Spirit and his role in our righteousness as well. The closing thought of chapter 2 though I would argue that easily the first verse of chapter 3 could fit with uh, the the main message of chapter 2 or the the second half of chapter 2. But here, just a short but profoundly important note. His praise, his approval, his acceptance, and think of this also as the opposite of the wrath of God that this chapter opened with, is not from from man, but from God. The only praise that ultimately matters. So many Jews were admired and praised as righteous by the very things that chapter 2 has identified. They praised themselves in their own hearts. Others of Jews praised them and some of the Gentiles as well. But that praise from man actually blinded them to the possibility they weren't being praised, that God did not accept that circumcision as guaranteeing heaven as they believed, some believed. Reminder from 1 Samuel here that the Lord is ultimately looking not like man does, who looks at the outward appearance and marvels and praises that, and we still do it in today's church, don't we, or in the nation. The Lord looks on the heart. We are so prone to equate acceptance by man with acceptance by God when they can be as different as night and day.
think about Romans 2 and this whole area of circumcision and true circumcision and see if we can bring some application that's meaningfully there for us as well, perhaps in different realms of the Christian life. Um, Lloyd-Jones, again, he already, we quoted him about the significance of the last two verses, and then he says that this is one of the most, of all Romans 2, this is one of the most serious chapters in the whole of the Bible. No chapter so searches profession, meaning how people believe, what they profess, what they think in their head about their standing before God, and when truth it be told, how they really are terribly, terribly deceived. Even these last few sentences have much application for us. Even though we're Gentiles, not Jews, for the most part, who aren't confused about circumcision per se, but sometimes are just as confused about how God works and what really matters to God. So, call these errors or mis... Nope, back one. Thank you. Errors or misjudgments that the Jews made that we too, as humans, 2,000 years later, can also make. Number one, and I think there's five, these Jews did not assess their inner condition because they so believed their outer condition sufficiently earned God's praise, favor, approval, or consideration of them being righteous. So, reminder for us that when God graciously places us in great spiritual privilege, as he has done with many of us, and is doing even within our church here, we must not presume that we are okay solely because of those advantages. The blessings have potential to blind us to the fact that we are just as great of sinners with those blessings, and just as much in need, a great need of a Savior of Christ. No one enters heaven because of the privileges given them here on earth. Only sinners who, because of faith in Christ and the gospel, in which they are given a new heart and a right understanding, do. So what are you, it may not be circumcision, but what are you truly trusting in? Like some Jews in the early church, you might be trusting in privilege, as we just noted. Perhaps you're trusting in external behaviors that simulate behaviors of Christ followers. So Piper notes here, they put external reality like circumcision or baptism or communion or church attendance or da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da where internal reality like faith should have been. But it's even possible that you're trusting in the fact that you have faith that you believe the gospel is true, that you believe the Bible is true, but that you are, that alone is not a saving faith. The question is, are you trusting in the person of Jesus Christ and in what he has done and the necessity of his sacrificial death to pay for you and the sufficiency of his work that you cannot add any of your own righteousness to it. And then out of this last verse, is God the Spirit truly doing a work in your heart in ways that are undeniably his doing? 
Martin Lloyd-Jones. Nothing really matters finally but the new nature, the new life, the divine seed. Believism will not save. A fideism, which is a fancy word for faith, that simply knows the terms may lead men to hell. What is important is not that you and I should say that we believe this or that, even though we believe the whole gospel. Even that is not the ultimate thing of importance. The thing that ultimately matters is, have we received the new nature by faith, by the Spirit working in us? Have we got the life of God in our souls? Are we partakers of the divine nature? A line from 2 Peter 1, 4. You can be highly moral. You can be well-versed in Scripture. You can argue about it. You can teach others and preach to others. You can do all those things, even more than the Jews did, and still be condemned. It is the state of the heart that matters. Secondly, and some of these you'll see some overlap too, they, and we certainly can be culpable of this as well, focused on certain commands that they saw as particularly righteous, really marks of righteousness, circumcision being one of those, but we can elevate as well New Testament commands that we see as particularly most righteous while downplaying their unrighteousness in not obeying other commands. The commands of God in the new covenant that we find easier to keep, we kind of just more naturally do those things, can become ones we tend to focus on and preach to others about. And the ones we keep failing in, struggling with, are the ones that we often will be silent about and perhaps even ignore. Third, they strived or strove for somebody who will not be able to let that go. It can be either, is my understanding. They strove for obedience to God by their own efforts and discipline, rather than by the power and working of the Spirit of Christ in the heart that comes through faith. And we, too, might do the same. I took this quote out, then decided to put it back in and forgot to put it on the slide. John Piper, without the Spirit... We either reject the law of God or we change it into something we can manage. And in either case, we lose and the law condemns us. You can become a transgressor of the law by rejecting it and by trying to keep it in your own strength. Just reminders again from Galatians. And again, we can fill in circumcision and uncircumcision with other things that may fit into that same concept. But the emphasis God has is the thing that counts and matters is faith working through love and keeping the commandments of God. Fourth, from the very last line of chapter two, they believed their perceived obedience won them praise from God when it was only praise from man, from themselves. They might even have been able to point you to, they would have been able to point you to scriptures and yet to fail to see the totality of the message of the scriptures and where circumcision fit within that. And so we might also affirm things about our own faith or relationship with God based upon affirmation from others who may or may not be speaking scriptural truth or not the whole scriptural truth. So just examining to see is our confidence on judgment day coming from a human perspective or from God's word and God's perspective. And finally, they sought righteous, I gave two different wordings on this, they sought righteousness apart from Jesus Christ, apart from complete, 
total dependent faith in him. Or you could say they failed to grasp that sinners only find true righteousness one way, by Christ, by his grace, by God's grace, and by faith. Here is the destination we're headed toward um, in Romans that I just want to, again, put before you now because it'll probably be a month before we actually get there studying it. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested, key words, apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short. That's going to be driven home in chapter 3 over and over and over. Everyone. And the only way anyone is justified is by his grace as a gift. And that all is only possible through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And only because God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And then the beautiful reminder from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake, he made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, to be our sin, so that in him we might actually become the righteousness of God. To those who believe, they are far better than God actually assesses them to be. The gospel and righteousness being given in grace seems unimportant, unnecessary, perhaps even foolish. But to those who believe what we're being told in Romans 2, that we are indeed as unrighteous as God is saying over and over that all of us are, to be given the righteousness of Christ is the most beautiful, precious gift we could receive. And Father, in that light, we just thank you Thank you for that provision. Even though we don't see it fully here in Romans 2, we thank you for the work that you have done in Christ and then how the Spirit incorporates all of that in our hearts as we trust in you. God, I pray for anyone here who may still, whether consciously, admittedly, I trust in my own righteousness, I don't need Jesus, or my greater fear, subtly is still believing that still relying on them being good enough for your acceptance. I pray, God, you will continue to shatter us and to show us no one, no one who thinks, feels, looks, seems righteous in our own stead and standing here and make it with you except through Jesus. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for his provision. Thank you for these days in which we think about the stunning fact that he left heaven in order to become through birth and then through a life here, a sacrifice for us and for our sin. We praise you. We thank you. We come to behold the newborn king. Amen.